Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Scripture for today's sermon comes from the book of Jude, verses 24 through 25. The word of God speaks to us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is God's word to us. Carly, you guys can grab a seat. Hey, good morning. Hey, happy uh, Memorial Day weekend. I know for many of us, this is a weekend that means you get a day off and it's a a time to to celebrate and be with family and friends. But I I do want to remind you that for a lot of us too, uh, we've got friends or family who are in the military who this weekend really represents them grieving the loss of life. Friends that they've had that have served overseas that have, have died serving us or have come back and have since died, maybe through suicide, which is a kind of an epidemic among a lot of soldiers. So here, here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to uh, just take a second and think about those people in your life that you have, friends or family that are in the military. And would you at some point today reach out to them, send them a text message, give them a phone call and just say, hey, I love you. I'm thinking about you and I'm praying for you. And then actually pray for them. That's the key. Like actually take a second and pray for them. Uh, I know I'm going to text a good buddy of mine later today. And so I want to invite you to do that. And if you're, if you're uh, either in the military or you've served, man, we really are praying for you today. We know that there's, th- th- this is a, a day that carries a lot. So thank you for what you've done for us. Uh, the other thing I want to say is, uh, man, one of my best friends in the whole world is here with us today, uh, David Adair and his wife, Anna, and their family. And, and hopefully you know David. If you don't, David gets to serve as the lead pastor of our Frontline Edmund congregation, which to let you in on a little secret is the best frontline congregation out of all five of our congregations. And I, I love David and his family. David has served me like crazy uh, as a pastor. He's, he's more uh, wise than I am. He's, he's been in it longer than I am. And one of, the, one of the ways, as I reflect back on the last two, three years of going through some really good, but also really hard seasons of ministry, one of the people that has specifically helped me fight the good fight and actually be sustained in ministry was David. So I love you like crazy. Thank you, man. It's fun to have your family with us today. Uh, so let's pray for Edmund and what God's doing there, and I'll pray for us, and we'll jump into the most encouraging two verses in the entire book of Jude today. Thanks for coming. You got the good stuff today in Jude. So Father, meet us today in ways that we both recognize we need you and in ways that we're not even aware of. And I pray for Edmund. I pray that you would uh, fill, fill that congregation with your presence. God, we pray that they would be salt and light to that community, that they would show people a different way to live, that they would show people that the good life really is found in Jesus, not in comfort or in possessions or in wealth or status, but that Frontline Edmund would just be uh, over, overrun with your mercy. 
and overcome with your grace. And we pray that as David gets up to preach week in and week out and the other pastors there serve and pastor, God, we pray that you'd protect them and that you'd bless them. And and thank you for Anna and for his family. Thank you for the gift that they are to our church, the unseen ways that they serve. We really just pray that they'd feel your love today. And, And today, we're looking to you. We ask that as we sit under the word, that you would shape us and form us. We pray today that these words would land hard in our heart. I I really realize there's nothing I can say today that's going to make the beauty and power of these verses come alive. I can't preach a sermon that's going to effectively do that, but Holy Spirit, you can do that. So I just pray that you do that today. Come and move in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 2016, a few friends and I uh, drove to Colorado to do some hiking, and the plan was to hike two 14ers, Mount Bierstadt, and then Mount Evans. And you can get across to the one uh, mountain and the other just by kind of going through what's called the Sawtooth Mountain, and I'll show some photos of it. This was honestly the most treacherous, dangerous hike that I've ever done in my life. It doesn't look bad from the photos, but there's a section of the hike where there's like this giant rock wall and a small section of path, maybe about three feet wide, and then it slants and it goes down to hundreds and hundreds of feet down where if you make a mistake, you will slip and you will die. And two years before I went there, I didn't tell my wife this before I went, but two people slipped and died on this mountain in 2012 and in 2013, just a couple years, or 2014, a couple years before we got there. So this is a dangerous hike. And we did it. We made it. I'm alive here to tell you about it. And when we turned the corner to go up to Mount Evans, we were exhausted. We were absolutely whooped at every level, sweaty, disheveled. And we turned the corner to make our final ascent to the summit of Mount Evans. And guess what I see? This giant parking lot filled with cars, people getting out of their cars, wearing flip-flops, walking this like 25-foot paved section up to the top of Mount Evans, and then they were taking selfies of themselves at the top of the mountain. And I remember like I was also on the top of Mount Evans taking photos with my friends, and I was like, so mad at everybody that was there. Because what what you realize when you turn the corner is there's this beautifully paved road that goes all the way down, all the way to the top of Mount Evans, to the summit. And it's just like you can park there, get out of your car, and walk 30 feet and be at the top of the mountain. And all these people had done that. And here me and my friends are, we're sweaty, we're worn out, we're exhausted. And I was just so upset at all of them. I was like, you guys didn't even see Mount Evans. Did you even hike this mountain? Like, you have no business up here taking a photo. You don't deserve to be up here. This is too beautiful, and we earned it, right? That was what was going through my head. Now, here's why I tell you that story, is because a similar thing is at play as we get to the very end of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Here's what's fascinating about this. This is the most well-known set of verses in the entire book of Jude. In fact, most of us have never heard a sermon on the book of Jude. The first sermon I heard on the book of Jude was the one I preached four weeks ago. And yet, these verses I've heard over and over and over as a closing benediction to many of our services, even here at Frontline Church. Throughout church history, thousands and thousands of churches across many different uh, uh, geographical locations for hundreds of years have used the last few verses here as a closing benediction to their service. And so most people, though they've never really read the book of Jude, though they're not familiar with this book and all the depth and complexity of it, they know these verses. 
And it's almost like what's happened is they've driven to the top of Jude and they're taking a selfie and, and they, they haven't done the treacherous journey that we've done through the book. One commentator says it like this. Many people who say and sing this magnificent doxology do so without having traveled the route that we have traveled through Jude's concern for his church. Now, to be clear, these verses are beautiful. They're true. It's in the Bible. So it's okay to have it without knowing the rest of the context. Like they stand in their own strength and in their own beauty. You can read these words and be encouraged by these words. But just like that hike, there is something different, isn't there? When you travel the treacherous journey of Jude, when you go through the whole narrative, when you get the book in its context and it's unexpected, it's not what you think, and what you get after a very hard, very complicated letter is some of the most beautiful words that Christians could ever hear. And so to help you really savor the beauty of the last two verses as we close out our series on the book of Jude, I want to remind you of where we've been, and we're going to kind of work our way through these two verses. Sound good? Okay, so week one, here's what we looked at, is that this is a letter that Jude did not necessarily want to write. The letter he wanted to write was very different. He wanted to write about the the beauty of our common salvation. He wanted to hold up the gospel as this diamond and let let us look at it from all these different angles. He wanted to sing 25 verses of doxology over what Jesus has done for us, but love demanded a very different response. Sometimes love demands that you respond differently. So in love, what Jude did is that he wrote to a group of Christians that were experiencing two ancient cancers that the people of God have always dealt with. The first was the the fact that there were people who had crept in unnoticed and they were distorting the grace of God by turning it into sensuality as a license to kind of do whatever you want to do because after all, God is really loving, he's really kind, and he'll just forgive us anyway. So they were distorting the grace of God. And by doing so, the second ancient cancer, which is connected to that, they were denying Jesus as our only Lord and our only master. In other words, Jesus just simply becomes a savior or a get out of hell free card for us, but he's not the living God filled with glory and power that will hold us accountable to our sin. So Jude is here writing about these two ancient cancers that have been eating away at the body of Christ. And his call to us was this, contend for the faith. If you're a follower of Jesus, the role that we play between now and either our death or when Jesus returns is to contend for the faith, to fight for our faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Week two, what we saw in week two was that Jude takes us on this really bizarre Old Testament journey where he goes through a Rolodex of stories to show us that among the people of God, there's always been two working realities. On the one hand, there's always been people who are true believers right next to people who are false believers. That within the church, you're going to have teachers that are good, that love Jesus, that are submitted to him, have a lifestyle that lines up with the word of God, and you're going to also experience wolves in sheep's clothing. You're always going to have both of these realities. You're going to have people that are genuine in their desire to follow Jesus, though imperfect, though they fail, though they kind of stumble their way forward in discipleship, right next to people who have good theology, who say all the right things, who check all the right doctrinal boxes, but their heart is actually opposed to God. Their behavior 
betrays what their profession actually says. And what Jude does is he gives us kind of a portrait of what it looks like to abandon the faith. And again, it doesn't, no one who abandons the faith necessarily just comes right out and announces it, although eventually that may be the case. But it starts with behavior marked by the following things. We saw this in week two. Unbelief, like the people of Israel. A transgression of God's limitations, like the fallen angels in heaven. Sexual immorality, like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah unbelieving cynicism like Cain, greed that leads to compromise like Balaam, and a rejection of authority like Korah. Remember, he went through all these stories to show us this is the characteristic trait of someone who is abandoning the faith once and for all delivered. And finally, week three was really pastoral and really practical where Jude basically turns a corner and he says, okay, here's what you and I are called to do. As followers of Jesus, the number one way that we contend for our faith once delivered is not by becoming a group of heresy hunters where we have watchdog blogs and talk about all the bad doctrine that's out there. Actually, the number one way that we contend for the faith is by taking responsibility for our own discipleship. It's by actually looking ourselves in the mirror in light of the goodness and truth and grace of God and figuring out what what does it look like for me to keep myself in the love of God? What does it look like for me to build myself up in the most holy faith? And so we looked at some really practical pastoral ways that you and I can abide in the love of Jesus so that we can remain and keep ourselves in the most holy faith. Now, today, he's going to round out. In light of all that crazy, amazing, tough, hard, treacherous journey, he's going to round us out and close out his letter by writing these words. Look at them with me, verse 24 and verse 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, one of the questions that arises that you may not think is important at first, but is actually a big deal uh, among scholars and theologians when they approach this text is, what's really happening here? Is this a blessing that Jude is tacking on at the end of his letter, or is this a doxology? And the difference between those are pretty interesting. A blessing is something that comes down from God to his people right? A blessing is something that's coming out of the heart of God down to us that we receive, whereas a doxology is something that goes up from us to God. It's directionally focused back to him. A blessing is an expression of of God's heart for his people. When you hear a blessing, you're hearing God speak his favor over you, his good intentions for your life. Dallas Willard defined a blessing as the projection of good into the life of another. That's what's happening when a blessing is spoken over you. God is projecting his good intentions for your life over you, and you just receive it. But a doxology is different because it's actually our expression of what's going on in our heart as we think about who God is, and we're telling him, here's what we love about you. Here's what we're celebrating about you. Here's what we are in awe of when we think of you. So here's a, an Old Testament example of a blessing. This is my favorite one from the Old Testament. It's known as the Aaronic blessing, not ironic blessing, but the Aaronic blessing. This is uh, from Aaron. Uh, and, and this is something that the people of Israel would hear every Sabbath day 
for hundreds and hundreds of years, they would grow up hearing these words. Listen to the heart of God for his people. Number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is God's heart for his people. That's a blessing. Here's a doxology. This is one of my favorites from the New Testament, Romans 11. The Apostle Paul had been writing about the goodness of God, the salvation of God, and then he kind of just breaks out in praise. And here's what we read in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so the question as you approach Jude is, was it a doxology or is it a blessing? And even if you look at the, the ESV Bible that many of you have, it'll say above it, doxology. And I just want to make a case that is this a blessing or is this a doxology? Yes, this is actually both. Here's what's fascinating about the ending of this book, that Jude is not just simply trying to close in a polite way of how most people that were Christians closed their letters to other churches, that Jude is doing something here that is absolutely significant. He is giving us both God's heart for us and our heart as the people of God responding back to God. This is a doxological blessing. It's sort of like a, a doxology that has a blessing stuffed inside of it. Anybody ever had a turducken? Like, ever? I, I've always wanted to have a turducken. I've never had the pleasure of eating it. But some genius had the idea of like, you know, let's take a chicken and stuff that inside of a duck, and let's take that duck and stuck, stuff that inside of a turkey. Like, PETA is very offended by that. I am very delighted by all of that. I've never had one. It sounds amazing. It, it's like, this is like a turducken. This is like, like Judas taking a doxology and stuffing it full of a blessing so that when you take a bite of it, you're like, what is happening in my soul right now? This is amazing. It's like our expression of love for God followed by God's expression of commitment and love for us all wrapped up together. It's incredible. So in light of that, let's work our way through line by line. We're going to start with the first three words of verse 24 and then go to verse 25. Now to him. I love that. This whole letter has been actually focused on Christians, written to us as followers of Jesus to warn us not to walk away from the faith to show us what it looks like to keep ourselves in the love of God. It's been written to us to, to warn us not to be false believers who make a profession but have a life disconnected. And yet near the very end of his letter, Jude cannot help himself. He stops focusing on Christians and he draws his gaze to God and he says, now to him. And notice what he goes on to say about this God. He says, to the only God. Our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the doxology. And what's so crazy about this, remember, Jude is who? 
Jude is the biological half-brother of Jesus. He was not someone who looked at Jesus and believed that he was anybody but his brother. Even when Jesus died on a cross, Jude was a skeptic. And yet shortly after, in the resurrection, uh, both Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters, they basically start to become believers and soon are leaders in the early church. And here Jude is writing a letter a few years after the resurrection of Jesus, and he's referring to his brother as this God who has glory and majesty, and dominion, and authority. I mean, he is blowing up and expanding our vision of God. And this is a really big deal for this reason, because the people that Jude has been writing to that have taken grace and they've distorted it into sensuality, they might say this about God, but they don't actually believe it. They want to emphasize the love of God. They want to emphasize the grace of God. They want to emphasize the kindness of God, that God is my buddy. He's my friend. He's my savior. But words that they may not in their heart of hearts emphasize about who he is are the four words that Jude mentions here. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And I'm not going to take a long time on this, but glory is a reference to the public, visible, weighty presence of God that when it appears anywhere in Scripture, absolutely freaks people out and demands their honor and respect. The glory of God. He walks into a room, and when the glory of God is present, you can't help but fall on your face in awe. Majesty, pointing to the, the greatness and the dignity of God as our King. Dominion, and what this means is that God's strength And his power and his ultimate control is over the entire world. As the famous theologian said, there's not one square inch over the entire created order into which God does not cry, mine. He has dominion. And in addition to that, authority, which is God's intrinsic right to rule over all things. Friends, here's the point. A big view of God equals a big view of our sin against that God. And a little view of God will lead you to trivialize and minimize sin as to not that big of a deal. And Jude is closing out his letter by expanding our vision, saying, God is these things. Now, that's powerful. That's amazing. That's true, and it's beautiful. But here's what's interesting. Every person who believes in any God, whether it's the God of the Bible or any other God that they want to imagine or create in their own heads or any God of any other religion, would say these exact same things about their God, wouldn't they? This is not a unique thing to say about a God. This is what everybody would say about their God. And yet what's unique about this is what our God does with his dominion and his authority and his power and his glory. What does this God do with the strength that he has? Well, here's what's crazy. This is where Christianity departs from every other world religion out there or any other belief that we could concoct in our own heads is that this God who is majestic laid aside his majesty, took off his crown, stepped off of his throne and entered our world as a breakable baby so that he might love us and rescue us and forgive us. You might have a glorious God, a majestic God, a powerful God, but where can you find a God who has and truly is all those things, who will set them all aside so that he might enter our world and rescue us out of our sin? That's the story of what our God has done. 
And not only did he live the life that we should have lived and hang on a cross bearing the weight of our sin and rise again from the dead, but Jude is now going to transition to the blessing. And I want you to hear very clearly the Father's heart for you and what he is using his dominion and his authority for in your life right this second. If you're a follower of Jesus, these words are for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what I'm about to say is what's your, it's an invitation. You're being invited into this. You ready? All right, look at verse 24 and let's look at the blessing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. This is your blessing. Your father keeps you. Fathers of Jesus, your father is able to keep you from stumbling. Now, now that doesn't mean that you don't trip up in life. That doesn't mean that you don't do things that you're ashamed of. That doesn't mean that you don't have good days and bad days. That doesn't mean that you don't occasionally fall into sin or brokenness or have seasons of sin and brokenness. But what it does mean to stumble does mean that you make your home in sin. To stumble is when you find the comfort of sin more comfortable for the long haul than being in the presence of God. When you stumble in Jude's terminology, it's to take sin, which is a prison, and make your bed there and live there till death. And what Jude is saying is that, hey, friends, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have a father who is actually able to keep us from doing that. One of the most helpful uh, pictures that I've heard of the Christian journey is uh, that you and I are like a yo-yo in the hands of a man who is going upstairs, I love that. Like we're like a yo-yo in the hands of a man who's going upstairs. Like we experience our life as up and down and good days and bad days and seasons of dryness and seasons of being near the presence of God. And yet we are headed upstairs. Like your final destination as a follower of Jesus is absolutely secure. And that may not be a big deal to you, but the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you learn about yourself, the greater you grow in self-awareness, the more you grow in maturity as a Christian, this becomes the sweetest, most important truth that you could ever, ever hear in your life. Like, let, let, let me say it like this. There's a Henry David Thoreau quote that I've thought about a lot, talking about the difference between youthfulness and middle-aged maturity. I think about this quote a lot. Here's what he says. The youth gets together his materials to build a bridge to the moon, or perhaps a palace, or a temple on earth. And at length, the middle-aged man concludes to build a woodshed with them. And that's related to youthfulness versus middle-aged life, and I actually think it's related to our life with Jesus. Like when I first became a Christian at age 13 as a teenager, do you know what my greatest desire was? My greatest desire was like, God, I want you to use me. I want you to use me. I don't want to waste my life. Like, make my life matter. I want to do something great for your kingdom. I want to be all in. Like, I'm, I, want to, I want you to just wring my life out like a sponge. And do you know where I stand now? Is not even that old. As a 35-year-old pastor who has walked with Jesus for a while now and seen really hard things, and I've actually seen lots and lots of people that I've baptized that have since abandoned the faith. I've seen people that I love dearly that slowly but surely get drawn away by the deceptive nature of sin. And then you wake up one day and they show up once a month and then they show up once every three months and they stop attending church and, church. and then you find out later through a friend of a friend that, hey, that person doesn't walk with Jesus anymore. Now they're like an outspoken, they hate Jesus, they hate his church. 
I've seen that happen so many times that do you know what my greatest desire is now? Somebody asked me a year ago, hey, like, what's your greatest desire? And I said, I just, I just want to finish the race. Like, I want to love Jesus and my wife and my kids till I die. Like, if you want to know my greatest ambition, I just want to love Jesus till I die. Be faithful to one woman and love my kids as best as I can. And that's it. Like, my, you might say, oh, your, your ambitions have dropped a lot. I actually think, like, that's the greatest ambition that any Christian could have. Amen? And this is what this is promised to us in a world of deconversion and cultural craziness and pastors getting exposed as frauds and people and friends walking away and abandoning the faith once delivered. Friends, listen, this glorious and majestic God who has all dominion and all authority is exercising that dominion and authority to keep you in his love. You are secure. Listen to the words of Psalm 121. This has always been God's heart for his people. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Did you notice the word refrain that was repeated again and again and again? He will keep you. The, the point of the Christian journey is way less about your hold on him and way more about his grip and his hold on you. And over time, like you, you realize my grip isn't as good as I want it to be, but I am secure in the love of Jesus. I have, a, I have a tattoo on my arm of a scene from the Odyssey. Some of you read that in high school or in college. And Homer's Odyssey has the scene where Odysseus is sailing past these sirens. And he was warned about the sirens. Sirens are these beautiful creatures that the closer you swim to them, and sailors would be drawn to these sirens, they would turn into these like beastly creatures that would destroy sailors. And so Odysseus is tempted. He wants to hear the siren song, but he doesn't want to die. So he plugs his sailor's ears with wax, and he has his sailor's tie him to the mast. So that way, as they sail past the sirens, he can hear the song, but he can't break free. And when he tries, they're going to tie him tighter and tighter so he can hear the song, but he doesn't die. And I actually think that's a beautiful, powerful image of our Christian journey, isn't it? That you and I are, we're on our journey home to God, but there's these siren songs all around us. And if I'm honest, I want to hear the siren song. I want to swim over to it. And there are moments in my life where I'm like, I'm really drawn to, to what the siren has to offer. And yet, friends, the gospel tells us that we've been tied to the mast of Jesus and we cannot break free, that he is lovingly holding on to us. So yeah, we keep ourselves in the love of God, but twice now Judah said that we are kept by God himself. It's this beautiful symbiotic relationship where yeah, we're trying to abide in his love, but at the end of the day, it's his grip on you that matters the most. Receive that as a blessing. Your father is able to keep you from stumbling. Number two, look at verse 24. And he's able to present you blameless before the presence of of his glory. Not only does your father keep you, but your father presents you to himself blameless. 
I love this because Jude has been talking about the day of judgment. He's been talking about a day of reckoning where God is going to uh, essentially respond to the behavior of humanity. And yet what he does as a brilliant Old Testament theologian that he is, is he pulls this reference from the sacrificial system where every year the people of Israel would find a spotless lamb to be sacrificed in the place of the people. The point being that you and I have not lived spotless lives, that we actually have lived in a way that deserves to to be punished, deserves to be judged, deserves, deserves to experience the justice of God. And yet in light of his mercy, what he's done is Jesus Christ has been provided for us as our spotless lamb. And what that means is that when Jesus died, he literally took our sin upon himself and he literally gifts us his righteousness to where in our place. So friends, here's the point. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you stand before God, it's not primarily just you standing before God, but you yourself, you are hidden inside of the spotless lamb. When the father looks at you, he's not like, ah, frustrated at all these things. He actually sees the finished work of Jesus. He sees the righteous life, life of Jesus. And you can stand on the day of judgment as a follower of Jesus, blameless before him. The Father uses his dominion and authority and glory and power to present you before himself as blameless. And that leads to the final thing I want you to see. Look at the rest of the verse. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. I love this line. With great joy. Your father's not only keeping you, your father's not only able to present you blameless, but friends, your father rejoices over you. And this line is tough to know, like, is it God does this and it makes us rejoice or God is the one rejoicing? I just want to say, I think both are true here, but God rejoices over us. I I don't know if you've had this vision of the day of judgment. If you grew up in church, maybe you don't have the baggage that I have, Uh, but I grew up in church and I had these like interesting ideas of what would happen at the day of judgment. I pictured this sterile white room. There'd be a ton of people And we're all just kind of waiting, like somberly, no one's speaking. And all of a sudden, this giant booming voice is like, Burkhart, Andrew W., last four of your social is. Come forward, please. And you you know, you come forward like this, and you're standing there. And then all of a sudden, there's this giant jumbotron in front of you. Does anybody else have like a jumbotron vision of Judgment Day? So jumbotron's in front of you. And it's like, okay, gosh, here comes. This is going to be so horrific, but... All of a sudden, my whole life is going to get played out on this jumbotron. My, my grandma's there. My family's there. Church community is there. And every shameful thing that I've ever thought, said, or done is going to be aired for everybody to see. And I'm just going to just be so ashamed. And gosh, this is taking hours and hours. And oh, I, I remember being a kid, literally being like, my mom is going to freak out when she sees this on the day of judgment. My dad is going to come unglued when he sees this on the day of judgment. And, and this was my constant. And then God's going to be like, go back. And you step back. And then the next person. And then once that's all done, he's like, come in. Now, now and you're in heaven. Enjoy. You know, I was like, that's what I thought. That's honestly what I thought. Now contrast that picture. And maybe that's like sort of your picture. Maybe not. Contrast that with what scripture has to say about the day of judgment for the people of God. Zephaniah 3 says this. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, 
Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Friends, God does not just put up with you. He does not just love you because he has to. He actually likes you. Some of you are like, well, yeah, maybe he only loves me because he died for me on the cross, and the cross is the way that he's able able to tolerate me. No. Why did he go to the cross? He went to the cross because of his great love for you. That's what drove him to the cross. He actually loved you before he died for you. He loved you before he entered humanity to live in your place. He loved you when you were at your worst. And now that he's rescued you, now that he's redeemed you, he's delighting over you. He's singing over you. He rejoices over you as a good father rejoices over his kids. I go in every night to check on my kids before I go to sleep. And I'm not exaggerating, probably every night, I'll see them laying in their bed and I just smile because they're my kids. I love them and they are mine. The father's looking at you. I don't know how you picture him. He just, he's happy with you, smiles, rejoices, sings over you. And this is the day of judgment. Another one, 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you have a vision of Jesus awarding you a crown of righteousness? I don't deserve anything. And yet there's coming a day where Jesus is going to award me a crown of righteousness. Let that sink in. Last one, Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church, and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, your father keeps you from stumbling. Your father presents you to himself without blemish, and your father rejoices over you even on the day of judgment. So how do we respond to that doxological blessing? One word, and it's the last word of this entire letter, amen. Do you know what the word amen means? Let it be. Yes, may it be so. And friends, this is the invitation to you that often there's a gap between the truth of God and your ability and my ability to truly from our heart say amen. We believe this is for other people, but we don't believe this is for ourselves. And here's my invitation. Here in just a minute, Pastor Sean's gonna get up and he's gonna pronounce this doxological blessing over us before we leave. And when we get to that word, amen, what I want you to do as you're looking up, don't close your eyes, don't, head your, don't hold your head low, look up and receive this And if you're a follower of Jesus, know that your father is communicating this truth over you. And as best as you can in your heart of hearts, just say, amen. Let it be. Would you stand with me?